0: So, you want to get rid of 2020? Can't wait for next month when we can kiss 2020 goodbye. Well, you know that in 2021, several major racetracks in the United States won't allow horses to run on Lasix, not just in two-year-old races, but also stakes races. We'll get an update on this experiment from a doctor with a bird's-eye view of Lasix-free racing. Plus, perhaps you remember our report about the building of a fancy racetrack and resort in St. Lucia. Well, you might see a similar complex spring up on another Caribbean island, Antigua. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate.
1: They're in the gates. They're about to move in.
0: They roll silent.
1: And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight. It's a hit by
2: Big finish.
0: This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And by others, we mean people who appreciate intelligent discussions on racing, the people behind the racing, and issues impacting the industry. If you've listened to this show over the past year, you can guess the group of people of whom I'm thinking who clearly don't appreciate those things. It's a shame. They clearly don't know what they're missing. In April of 2019, several major racetracks in the United States, including the three that host the Triple Crown, announced they would ban the use of furosemide, commonly known as Lasix, given on race day for two-year-olds starting in 2020, this year. Then in 2021, the ban would essentially follow that class, but only when it comes to stakes races. No LASIKs for any horse in a stakes race or juvenile race next year, regardless of age. Stakes races, of course, include the Triple Crown. For those of you not completely familiar with the situation, LASIKs is a diuretic that is given to horses four hours before a race to drain fluid from them. It was first approved for racing in 1974. By lowering the volume of fluid... There is less pressure put on the walls of the capillaries in the lungs as the horse's blood pumps faster while the horse is at full exertion. With full water in their systems, some horse's capillaries can burst and the horse will spit up blood after a race. The problem with draining fluid from the horse before a race is, would you go for a run while you're dehydrated? Probably not. You would want to be just the opposite as hydrated as possible, though humans don't spit up blood from running the way horses can. Nonetheless, the U.S. and Canada are the only countries that allow Lasix to be given to a horse on the day that it races. There were some industry groups that immediately voiced their support for the phase-out of Lasix, including the Jockey Club and the Kentucky Thoroughbred Association, as well as the Breeders' Cup, which we'll get to in a moment. But as you can imagine, This process didn't happen without some friction. For example, you know that the Stronach Group owns the two thoroughbred tracks in Maryland, Pimlico, which hosts the Preakness, and Laurel. In June, the Stronach Group went before the Maryland Racing Commission seeking state approval to run two-year-old races without Lasix. The Commission cracked the knuckles of the Stronach Group with a ruler. The Commission didn't order two-year-old races to be run in Maryland but said that they couldn't run two-year-old races without Lasix. Eventually, in July, the Commission and the Stronach Group agreed to a Lasix-free pilot program through 2023. The Breeders' Cup, which rotates among several tracks in several states, also agreed to the phase-out of Lasix. So, earlier this month, Future Stars Friday, the first day of the Breeders' Cup, featured horses all running without furosemide. Golden Pal wins it by a length on the line. Fire at will to the front and drawing clear in the Juvenile Turf.
1: Vquest just keeps on running. Vquest to win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies. Ant Pearl, final furlong, leads it by five. Ant Pearl wins it. Essential quality and Luis Saez have won the TVG Breeders' Cup Juvenile.
0: That was a bigger step than it looked, by the way. Considering that in 2012, the Breeders' Cup ran its two-year-old races LASIKS-free, but then backtracked and did away with the ban entirely in 2013. So, how did the horses this year come out of these races? Well, Dr. Stuart Brown had a bird's-eye view of the horses before and after the races, since he's the track veterinarian at Keeneland, where the Breeders' Cup was held this year. And so we welcome Dr. Brown here to In the Gate. What are your general thoughts about the condition of the two-year-olds before and, most importantly, after the Breeders' Cup races with regard to bleeding?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, generally speaking, we had really good feedback from horsemen uh, and the private practitioners, the veterinarians that care for all those horses in a post-race setting relative to their experience with a lot of horses, especially on the Breeders' Cup Friday that encompassed our two-year-old racing. And most of, I think, what we've all talked about a little bit from both a uh, regulatory side, from the safety side, but also practically speaking from the private practitioner side about how horsemen work with their veterinarians as the attending veterinarians, like private, uh, almost like primary care physicians do for you and I as human patients, about what goes into caring for those horses uh, optimally for them to compete for them to train and then to race and all the things that go into that and how do you manage their overall health to include their respiratory health in terms of ameliorating you know the symptoms and and in the condition of exercise induced pulmonary hemorrhage or EIPH as we call bleeding and I think one of the things we all talked about going into the shift in mindset relative to two-year-old racing is You know, a a lot of the philosophy we've had about how you utilize LASIKs is also been a little bit like preventative medicine, you know. uh, We know succeeding incidents relative to EIPH can become cumulative, and so they can certainly enhance, you know, the incidence rate or potentially the severity. But as we had moved through um, several decades of LASIKs use, we began to find that you know, more and more horses are always, you know, accounted for on the on the LASIK list so that it's being used in a preventative manner in order to prevent, you know, the occurrence or ameliorate the symptoms, um, probably more well-defined, ameliorate the symptoms we see with bleeding. And so it clouded our judgment, I think, to some degree, in, in my opinion, about what's the true incidence rate anymore, you know, because we're proactively working to manage for an endpoint being you know, the occurrence of VIPH, which causes horses, you know, to 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 experience, you know, a discomfort or to change, you know, sort of how they'll be able to perform optimally. And so now, as we had kind of incorporated so many horses that were on it, we didn't really know what the true incidence rate. And yet, veterinary medicine has continued to advance all along, you know, and over these decades, we've learned more and more about VIPH. We've learned more and more about how to care for the horses. We've learned more about how to control the allergens in their environments. And so as we moved through this continuum, especially in Kentucky, where we'd step forward with restricting the use of Lasix in our racing population of two-year-olds this year, we were going to be able to step back from the situation and say, okay, what's the real incidence of this issue? How really bad is it? And what about the things that we're doing today in 2020 uh, with good horsemanship, um, well-managed, you know, populations of horses that receive good veterinary care? And what is this real incident rate that we now experience on race day? In a true post-race situation, not... we're just sort of sitting here always just looking for you know the most severe cases that we can visually see but also what do we see at an endoscopic level when we really go down and look at what's happening in the in the in the uh in the airways of the racehorse and what we're kind of finding is that most of the things that we're discovering in a post-race situation parallel what we have anticipated in the more severe cases so you know somewhere in the neighborhood of 83 to 85% 85% of those horses, we find, you know, minuscule amount, even, you know, either zero or a trace, which might be a little droplet somewhere in the entire airway of a horse that's being examined post-race and the other population of horses may be somewhere between a one and what we would call a five with a one being the least severe and the five being the most severe. And so if we look back at studies that have been done to look at this problem or this issue internationally, you know, we begin to look at the more severe cases populating that group of horses that may be, you know, the fifteen percent realm. So they're similar to what we've probably been learning. And we're also getting greater comfort level on being able to manage those horses going into those races and feel comfortable about how they're performing optimally uh, without the support of LASIKs.
0: All right, there's a whole lot to unpack there. So let's go through one thing at (laughs) a time. What did you find with the horses who ran the two-year-olds after the Breeders' Cup races with regard to bleeding?
1: Well, I think, you know, like I say, uh, anecdotally and in conversations we've had with them, we have found, you know, a very low incidence number of those horses that experience clinical EIPH. Not zero, but a very low number and uh, And they parallel what our expectations would be that you know most for the most part about eighty five percent of those eighty three to eighty five percent of those horses showed no evidence of the which I think is reassuring to us because going into this, it's like a lot of things, right? You know when you change the landscape of something and then you do it the first time, you know you 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 brace not knowing what. Whether or not you know your hedge or expectation is what is going to be the realized outcome. And I think for the most part, especially here at Keeneland, because we monitored the population of two year olds that participated in our short July meet as well as in our October fall meet. And our experiences from those two seem to be very well supported and paralleled with what we saw in the Breeders' Cup races, which I think is really an, an important thing to take away from this experience too, because. If you think about what has happened to racing in 2020 and the compression of the racing schedule where we've had these interruptions due to the pandemic and we've had horses that have been delayed in their you know, development and then their ability to get to the races, many, many horses that you had in the summer were definitely ones only starting for the first time. And you will lead up through that continuum to the Breeders' Cup where now you have horses who have you know, move through the first time starting process as two-year-olds and they're going to be getting stretched out to either be sprinters or distance horses so they may be now running two turns. They may be running on grass versus dirt and so we now begin to see in our Breeders' Cup experience some of the outcomes of what the career of those two-year-olds has been in 2020 and now what happens when they don't have the support of furosemide or Lasix on EIPH and it has remained fairly consistent across all those experiences what the outcomes looked like to
0: us in those conversations did you notice any difference in the post race energy level of the horses running without lasix on friday versus the horses who did run with lasix on saturday
1: you know i don't know that i, I guess i don't really know that i could could say that i you know with, with confidence whether i could you know, state that there was a difference. And I'm not real sure that I was necessarily in a position to where I could have, you know, evaluated or monitored those horses. You know, I think, you know, probably at the heart of your question has been, you know, what a lot of folks have talked about relative to the washout effect that potentially could accompany uh, horses in a post-race situation with blaze issues. And, you know, keeping in mind a whole lot of different things sort of go into the impact there relative to whether, which we did have a fairly, you know, warm uh, weather environment for November for Kentucky for our Breeders' Cup races. But I think things seem to be fairly consistent, I think, across the experience of those horses on both of those days versus what we would seen in the fall.
0: Now, you also talked about feedback Back in 2012, when the Breeders' Cup ran their two-year-old races without LASIKs, Dr. Larry Bramlage, the on-call vet from the American Association of Equine Practitioners, said that none of those horses bled. This year, I searched for social media chatter from horsemen about their two-year-olds who ran in the Breeders' Cup. I didn't see any such chatter. What, if anything, did you hear either at the track or on social media?
1: No, I think that was pretty pretty consistent. I think the conversations that we had with horsemen as well as with the private practitioners that support them indicated that they didn't see any obvious evidence of EIPH in those horses in a post-race setting. Like I said before, then... You know, what we have to keep in mind, though, relative to veterinarians and veterinary practitioners in terms of diagnosis is that, you know, we do the physical examination on the horse externally, but then we also do endoscopic evaluations to reinforce what our observations are. And so we know and and look, You know, because tiny droplet of something can be detected in those exams, we characterize everything that we see. And what we found in those instances is a very, very low incidence of even finding even a minuscule amount of uh, evidence of the IPA. So it's consistent with what the experiences were in 82 or 83 that Dr. Bramlich was speaking to again, reassuring us that, you know, our inferences going into this were going to be consistent uh, in terms of our
0: expectations. Now, I mentioned 2012. That same year, 2012, a study published by one of the most renowned equine pharmacologists in the country, Dr. Tom Tobin of the University of Kentucky, said that between 60 and 80% of horses in that study who died from what were reported first as heart attacks Actually, died from bleeding in the lungs. What do you make of those numbers in light of what you've just told me?
1: You know, I'm not familiar with Dr. Tobin's reference or study. You know, we certainly characterize uh, incidence of issues relative to non musculoskeletal incidence rates as well as, you know, the ones we see that happen musculoskeletally in horses in and racing. And, and certainly we see potentially some of those classified in terms of uh, whether they could be EIPH or cardiac events and those kinds of things, but I guess I'm really not familiar with the study in order to comment on it per se relative to, you know, what I can, you know, certainly relay is certainly the encouraging results I think that we can point to based upon our clinical observations and experiences through this fall.
0: We are chatting here on In the Gate with Keeneland Racecourse Veterinarian Dr. Stuart Brown. As you know, in 2021, the Lasix phase-out at many of the major tracks in the United States will extend not only to all juvenile races, but also to all stakes races for racehorses of any age. In your experience, based on how a horse develops with age, if that horse does not bleed as a two-year-old, What does that say about the possibility of bleeding as a three-year-old or older horse?
1: Well, I think that, you know, again, one of the things that I appreciate, too, has been the discipline of this approach. You know, to start with a crop of two-year-olds so that we can learn as we went along, as we can be guided by our experiences so that we do the best thing and optimally to care for the racehorse. And I think that we can take away from our 2020 experiences, which has been obviously unlike a lot of others in terms of a racing calendar, have been you know our, our ability to kind of be insightful, uh, introspective, investigatory as we move through the continuum, and we're focused on this two-year-old group. Now, you know, we will watch and monitor that population as they go into their three year old season and be able to also understand okay, so what is it about? The continuing regimen of a horse that moves through their career from two to three as they mature and as they get more starts and as they perform and as they actually refine you know their athletic abilities whether they be sprinters or they be dirt horses or grass horses or distance horses as they hone in more and more on what their particular skill set is we'll then be able to continue to monitor what is the likeliness or the prevalence of the IPH to develop throughout their careers? All the while, you know, as we pointed out in the beginning, is we're continuing to reinforce the management of horses both from a veterinary standpoint as well as the environment with which the horses are maintained in order to maintain their optimal respiratory health. And so just like you know, lower airway disease that we see in the horses, much like asthma in people. And so we do lots and lots of things to help manage their environment, to care for them that manage this inflammatory effect that we can see in the environment that they're in that we know that can contribute to the IPH. So we'll continue to do those things and we hopefully will continue to be rewarded with the kind of experiences we've seen so far that We are doing lots of things to help care for horses better today than we ever have that also help to ameliorate the, you
0: know, the occurrences of bleeding in the the thoroughbred racehorse. So you're basically saying we don't know a whole lot and there's a lot more to learn. Sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's why I, I say at the outset, I think it's been good, the discipline that the industry has taken to move through this because there were lots of things for us to learn from the onset relative to what our experiences would be and then knowing what the impact would be, too, you know, on our industry widespread. And so we want to make sure we're doing the right things, that we're always, you know, putting the safety and the welfare of the of the racehorse first and foremost, and that we're doing all those things to make sure we care for them adequately.
0: Now you started to refer to this a little bit earlier but as a vet at the track committed to this Lasix phase out what training have you had specifically to be a first responder to these bleeding incidents
1: Well you know certainly far and away you know one of the things that is kind of a cornerstone I think of equine veterinary practice is always being able to manage from a first aid standpoint any kind of potential emergency situation. Keep in mind a lot of, I think, what we see in terms of uh, evidence of exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage tend to be, you know, what we would even characterize as subclinical. It's the kind that we detect in a horse relative to um, post-race examination with an endoscope that we're looking deep into the airway and stuff. The cases that we might have that would be the most severe that potentially could present to us with the horse that had to be supported or cared for, tend to be defined around a lot of the parameters we would do to manage the horse that would potentially uh, wind up needing our support. And whether that would be fluid therapy, anti-inflammatory treatment, those kinds of things to stabilize the patient. And so just like any other occurrence that we would see in a potential emergency situation, we would attend to those horses in a similar manner, you know, as we're trained in veterinary
0: medicine, specifically for the
1: horse, but also for the
0: racing athlete. We mentioned that in 2013, the Breeders' Cup eventually did away with the LASIKs ban entirely, even after running their two-year-old races the year before without LASIKs. So, based on what you experienced directly during the Breeders' Cup, and taking into account the climate around the industry right now, what effect will this year's Breeders' Cup juvenile races have on the effort to phase out LASIKs?
1: Oh, I think they will have a supporting and additive effect because of what we continue to experience and what we've learned about managing the racehorse on race day without the support of Blasix. Of and I think, again, I believe wholeheartedly in what we are doing as a profession and what we're also doing as horsemen to care for these horses and to support them in a way that helps to ameliorate, you know, the occurrence of EIPH. And so uh, in a lot of ways, we may be, have even failed to sort of recognize all of these extra things we've done from a cumulative basis that will help to support these experiences going forward. I think we need to be adaptable. I think we need to continue to keep our eyes open, you know, so that we identify things from a disciplined perspective that we can react to accordingly on behalf of the horse. But I think as the industry moves through um, the next phase of this, I think the experiences that we've had this fall, Will continue to support you know movement along that continuum.
0: Get ready, everybody! 2021's right around the corner. Dr. Stewart Brown, thank you so much for this insight, sir. Thank you. Appreciate being on with you. Stop me when you've heard this before. A new racetrack may be on its way to a Caribbean island not known for top-level racing. We'll see whether Antigua may become a destination for more than just cruise ships. Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Game. You might remember that about a year ago, we reported on the opening of a new racetrack in the Caribbean, specifically on the island of St. Lucia. It was called the Pearl of the Caribbean, and along with the track came a casino, resorts, a marina, shopping, and even high-end residential areas. But as we reported, the deal between the developer, Teo A. King, who also runs the China Horse Club, and the St. Lucian government, was pretty one-sided in the developer's favor. The idea for the Pearl of the Caribbean, though, did not start with Teo A. King. It started with a man named Winston Trim, a lifelong horseman who worked in New York under trainer Robert Barbera. Reportedly, Trim spent much of his adult life trying to bring racing to his native St. Lucia, and with Teowah King's help and, uh, leverage, the deal happened. Incidentally, Trim did not live to see his dream realized. He died in a motorcycle accident in March of 2017. We tell you this, because a similar situation may be developing on the nearby island of Antigua. It starts with a guy named Hanson Richards, who is both a horse trainer and a customs agent. Richards and three other people are trying to build a new track to replace the little bullring that's now used for racing. Well, there hasn't been any racing there for over a year, partly but not entirely due to the coronavirus pandemic. The little track doesn't even have a grandstand or any other amenities. Hanson Richards wants to change that, calling his dream track the Gem of the Caribbean, similar to the Pearl of the Caribbean in St. Lucia. And we've invited Hanson Richards here to In the Gate to talk about how this dream might become a reality. What do you envision this new racetrack complex will be?
2: My vision for this racetrack, first, first in first, Antigua, which is the largest of the Leeward Island chains in the northern east northeastern Caribbean, we attract a lot of people, especially tourists. Uh, we're, we're based on tourism, our main industry. So my envision for this racing race, race development would be to make it a sports tourism culture. We have, I have a lot of interests, um, both from the United Kingdom and the United States, who are willing to come down and invest, race their horses, open their stables, and race horses in the winter season in Antigua. So my vision is to have an all-weather surface where we'll have um, competitive racing um, throughout the Caribbean. We can include the Caribbean. That is what I'm looking at, Caribbean championships and so forth, and to see if we can host any international meet uh, once we be established. We've had quite a, a bit of interest from, you know, different people who have come from all over the world. And basically, they're interested in living here, so to speak, but... Unfortunately, there's nothing there to attract them in terms of racing. So what I am looking to do is to get that up and going so we'll have something to be part of and we can attract, as I said, people throughout the region and on the international scene. So for me, I, I'm looking at a long-term investment to have racing throughout the year. And we depends on the, the amount of bloodstock that we'll, we'll, we'll have. We can either do it weekly or a couple of times during the week, and so forth. But yeah, that's in the that's in all a part of the planning. But that is what I envision going forward. The local people of Antigua and Barbuda have been involved in horse races for over 50 years, and with me being one of the future generations, I'm looking forward to getting this up and going for the youth to, for, the, for the, the existing youth that is there now and for the future. So that is what I have envisioned for horse racing in Antigua and Barbuda.
0: What is your process for trying to make this happen? Have you found a developer with whom to partner? How is this going to work?
2: Well, for the, for the time being, because of the the, the pandemic, um, you know, everybody's watching how the, the economy is going um, globally. Um, I've had some interest. But as I said, everybody's still watching how the pandemic is going to play out. It's going to take a year or two before vaccinations are ready. Everything goes back to normalcy. Uh, So in the meantime and between time, I am reaching out to different people, hoping that I can attract some sort of interest to show them what we can offer or what would be their benefits once investing in Antigua. Not only with the racing, but the overall project that I have. It will include real estate, commercial properties, restaurants, supermarkets. I want to do an indoor stadium, which would be the first as well, On the location of the property wherever I can get um, a decent piece of land to do all of this, to include this into our sports tourism culture. So it wouldn't wouldn't just be the horse racing part of it alone. It would be a multifaceted facility where we'll have interests from all over and different interests from a lot of people to invest into it. So it's not it's not the horse racing arm um, alone, but overall it's a multifaceted facility that I'm looking to develop and the horse racing would have been the feature attraction, so to because you know that is where the gaming, the gaming um drives the, the interest of um people to purchase horses and to compete and so forth and to make a little change. So that is that is what I'm looking at.
0: Do you fear at all that when you bring developers in who have money, that this process no longer becomes your process, it becomes their process? Have you given any thought to that?
2: I've given a lot of thought, but I'm going to be honest with you. For me personally, my whole interest is to see the people of Antigua and Barbuda and the future get something that is well-deserved having been involved in horse racing all my life and, you know, watching all the regional countries and the international scene having a facility where, you know, you got a lot of interest, a lot of people got and so forth. I'm envious of it. And for me personally, that is what I want to see to come to Antigua. I'm not looking to, you know, become this wealthy, wealthy individual because of, of my idea. I'm looking for someone or a group of people to invest into Antigua that all of us can benefit, all the citizens can benefit. So for me personally, it is creating jobs for the youth, creating careers, getting opportunities to expand their their, their knowledge and and so forth into a culture that we know is very diversified.
0: As we said in our introduction, the obvious comparison is the Pearl of the Caribbean in St. Lucia What discussions have you had with the government of Antigua and Barbuda about how this project would happen?
2: Well, I've spoken to quite a few ministers pertaining to the initial development of the waste track, the racing industry. And I've showed them the overall interest and the benefit that it will bring to the country economic-wise. Horse racing in general drives a lot of interest. And a lot of people that will come into the country, you know, will look for homes and so forth. You know, you open um, doors for young people who have careers that can broaden, they can broaden their, their, their scope, so to speak, within the industry. Um This is something that once you can create jobs, you know, w- once jobs are created, you know, poverty is restricted, so to speak. So that is what I'm basically looking at. Uh, it's, that's not just um a sport, the sporting industry, but a job creating opportunity for the people of Antigua and Barbuda. So I've I've spoken to the Minister of Sports. I've had discussions with my uncle, who is the Minister of Information and Technology. I've spoken to the Aviation Minister, quite a few people in government, government officials and so forth, members of parliament, to let them know the existing product that we have. It is basically, we're not driving, we're not creating any sort of interest or any sort of wealth so to speak. No, no job creation is there. The racetrack is basically, you know, a, a backyard fun and game stuff. And, you know, horse racing is not that, you know, it's a lot of money spent in racing horses and feeding horses and breeding horses. So you must put a culture or uh, must put an, a, a, a start to getting this, um, this stuff um, up and going.
0: I'll get back to the average person of whom you were speaking in a second, but you were talking about the government ministers, and in St. Lucia, the way that new investors in the Pearl of the Caribbean came on board was that the main developer, Teo King and his development company, Desert Star Holdings, was allowed to buy and sell St. Lucian passports, essentially citizenship status to a sovereign nation, and then Desert Star Holdings kept the money. I don't know how the government considered that an equitable deal. What have you spoken about, like any of this, with the government of Antigua and Barbuda?
2: Well, I've never brought up that idea in terms of the, the CIP program in which you speak. It is a topic, a sensitive topic. Each, and, uh, each country has a different way of selling their CIP um, initiative. For me personally, there's a sensitive topic for me they would have known what they would, what they would have looked for in terms of those type of initiatives, investment. I have never spoken to them concerning a CIP program to attract developers to do so. That is something, if they would have been encouraged to do so, they would have looked at it at a different angle and then go from there. But for me personally, I believe we can attract investment without that type of program. For me personally, that that is how I see it. I, I, I cannot really speak on that topic, so to speak, in terms of how they would approach an investment like that. I know they we have a CIP program going on, but in terms of the horse racing, attracting the developer to do a horse racing program, that is something that they would have to look into and see what what the developer is looking for in return and see how they can do it. So do it like that but i 've never spoken to them. in in, in advertising the the, the product like that.
0: We're talking with Hanson Richards, a trainer in Antigua, who's trying to bring top-level racing back to the island. We welcome him here to In The Gate. Now, you were talking about the average person. I looked on a website called AverageSalarySurvey.com, where it said that the average Antiguan makes $23,000 in U.S. dollars per year doesn't seem like there's a lot of disposable money there. What research have you done to determine how many people would come to the track to bet and enjoy a day at the races?
2: Well, that question, as I said, in terms of that, we do have, yes, the, 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 the salary based off of the average salary. That, in its essence, will, that's a topic that I'm kind of baffled on in terms of that because we have quite a few people who have wagered on racing at our local casinos and so forth, but to do racing in the Caribbean, in Antigua like this, I know for a fact you will have, you know, the, wealth, the wealthy Antiguans that we come and wager and also will attract people from outside to do so. But me- Remember Pari Mutual wagering now or Simon Cash wagering is online, so you, it's not just the local Antiguans that will gamma wager on, on the race, and you'll have people from overseas to do so. So for me personally, looking at it in that way, yes, you will have some sort of wagering, but I believe it will be more from the international scene once we can get it out there on a product like that.
0: In terms of people who are on the island, I totally understand the simulcast thing, but in terms of people who are on the island, what sense do you get that wealthy celebrities who have homes on the island, and there are quite a few, like Sir Richard Branson, Giorgio Armani, what sense do you get that they would support this product?
2: It all depends on how you go about it and how you advertise the product and what you're looking to achieve. Once we sit down with a developer, we can discuss on how we're going to approach this type of um, investment and how we're going to attract the wealthy individuals who own homes in Antigua. We have a, a, an island just outside of Antigua, which is called Long Island, um, home to a lot of wealthy UK residents who will come to Antigua for winter vacation and so forth. So in order for us to attract that wealth is something that we will have to sit down and discuss the clientele, so to speak, and what we can offer in terms of initiatives and so forth to attract them to come to and to, to come to the racing and to be a part of the maybe the ownerships um, boxes and so ownership of horses and and wagering and so forth. So it is something that we have to discuss in order to attract that sort of clientele. But for the average Antiguan, we have supported horse racing, as I said, from the inception, from since back in the early 20th century. So I can guarantee you, once we have something like this, it will garner more interest of the local people and the surrounding region. Because we've had regional competition between Antigua and Saint Kitts and Nevis, and you know we got a quite a, a big reception of the Nevisians coming to Antigua to race. So in order, once we get this established, I'm looking to attract the regional islands, the small islands that are just outside of Antigua, and hopefully on a wider margin as well too.
0: With the pandemic obviously slowing things down, and you made reference to that earlier, what is your time frame for moving this project along?
2: All right. As covered with the pandemic, initially I'm looking to start negotiations and so forth to with a developer who would be interested in it. And then we, as we look at how the current situation is going globally, my timeline to get this up and going would be within two to three years from now. So in that time, we start to initiate contact with outside people to start to look to invest into the country, advertise the product to let them know this is what we're going to offer. This is what you can get in return. You know, so at the end of the day, once the product is up and going, we will have the people to support it going forward. But as you know, right now with the pandemic, uh, certain people are kind of watching, but it is not something that, you know, the, the world has stopped. It's just basically slowed down, waiting to go back to normalcy. So in the meantime, this is what you go to, you have to do now. Start to look at development and how we're going to get people to buy into the product. Once it has gone back, in. the, the world has gone back to normalcy and the, the other project is um, up and running.
0: Hanson Richards joining us from the gem of the Caribbean, as Antigua the island itself is referred to. Thank you so much for your time, sir.
2: I greatly appreciate it, greatly appreciate it.
0: Our thanks once again to Hanson Richards and Dr. Stuart Brown. In 2008, Big Brown took home two-thirds of the Triple Crown, and his principal owner, Michael Ibarone, was riding high until he was outed for making unauthorized investment trades. He faded away soon after his cover was blown. Seven years later, 2015, came the story of Ahmed Zayat and the superstar Colt who ended the Triple Crown drought. But the owner of American Pharaoh is nowhere to be found as his debts have reached a dizzying amount. His stable's in receivership, his assets almost all sold. He compulsively bought, but could not pay the bills, which seems impossible to believe, since Pharaoh's breeding rights should have rendered financial mountains into small hills. Mike Ivorone still owns horses, but on a smaller scale. Who knows if Zayat will ever do the same? sometimes the itch that leads to greatness can never be fully soothed and from greatness comes the downward slide to shame you can get us on our youtube channel by searching in the gate podcast you can get us on stitcher soundcloud spotify tune in the pink apple podcatcher app and of course in the listen tab of the espn app for the full in the gate experience subscribe now in the listen tab of the espn app and please take a minute to rate and review the show those reviews really help others find us And by others, we mean people who appreciate the kinds of discussions we have on this show. If you've listened to In the Gate over the past year, you can guess the group of people of whom I'm thinking America's Best Racing, who clearly don't appreciate those things. It's a shame. They clearly don't know what they're missing. You can follow me on Twitter at b Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In the Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.